And so it seems like something that that is sort of fantastical and that happens in novels, but not in real life. And in fact, I, I feel like the point of the book is largely that, no, actually, this happens to everyone. This is how it always is. Killer Cows Lemonade. What? Killer Cows Lemonade. Context? Term of endearment. All right, well, welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Kyle. I'm Jeff. And today on the show, we've got Lori Frankel. Her most recent novel is called Goodbye For Now. It's about a software programmer who invents a way to speak to dead relatives. And she has a book coming out next year called This Is How It Always Is, which chronicles the tales of the youngest of five children. But that's not what her story is about, right? Her story today is about a student of hers. Super interesting student. With an interesting background. And there's a good reason why she couldn't tell this story before. Let's get into it. Lori, thanks for joining us. We're really excited. Thank you so much. I'm excited too. Yeah. So, you know, I I actually found out about you. I discovered you because um, of Goodbye for Now. Uh, I'm, you know, a huge tech buff. And, you know, the first time I heard about the story um, was actually, you know, a capsule review in the New York Times. Um, and I knew I had to go and pick it up uh, just because it was, it, it combines so many things that, you know, at the time I was, I was involved with. Um, you know, the, can you give us, you know, a, a quick intro into the story, um, just so that, you know, our listeners know what it's all about in case they haven't picked it up yet? Yes, yes, absolutely. It is about a software engineer who invents a way for people to email and eventually Skype with their <laughs> dead loved ones. Okay. And, it, and it's not a it's not a ghost story. It's a technology story. Um, the idea is that so much of you exists on social media these days that you could probably be recreated by a clever algorithm. I wouldn't say it's a ghost story, but it's a little bit like you've recreated a digital ghost. There's there is the sense of horror at certain points in the story as this idea comes to fruition in a very intimate but also sort of creepy way. Yes, yes, good. <laughs> it's supposed to be creepy. It's um, it's supposed to be creepy. And I think a lot of people read it and thought um, they were concerned because it seemed like I was advocating this. And I and I instead, you know, it's a little bit of a warning, frankly. Uh, and it is it is a little bit creepy. It's a little bit creepy. And I have to say, like, there are moments when you're reading it, it all seems so plausible. And I think yes. that adds to the eeriness is that, sure, this, you know, between data science and all the advances we've made in computing recently, um, and the next step, which is quantum computing, which adds a sort of randomness in and of itself, this right. seems like something that is in the offing. And it's, I know. it's present in the writing. It's clear in the way that the story is told. So yes. the, 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 progr Thank you. The, the program that you actually write about, it's called Repose. And yes. on your website, you have a bunch of links that show, yes. you know, this is not actually so far out of the realm of possibility and it's something that people have actually already been working on can yeah you, can you speak it is. you want to speak on that a little sure um you know it is this is in fact happening in a lot of ways when i pitched it um my agent sort of thought it was going to be science fiction and in fact the book won the endeavor award which is given to the a writer in the pacific northwest who has written the best their favorite uh science fiction fantasy i believe is, is what the award is officially and you know of course i was delighted <laughs> to win it but it's but it doesn't feel to me like it is is either one of those things it is science fiction or fantasy in fact this is being done 
um, in in lots of different realms. Um, Facebook has an "If I Die" app. Mm -hmm. um, the government actually officially recommends that you have um, a, a, an electronic will, a will for all of your passwords and all of it, so that your your the, the you that exists online can be managed after you die. That is actually oh, man, an official recommendation. Thing? Well, so it's an so actual it's thing. It's so funny. It's so funny that you mentioned this because I I was uh, at the bar with with my girlfriend the other day, and I, I made a comment um, to her that I have a twin brother, and I said, um, Yeah, if I ever die, then I I have already given my password to my twin so that he can you know delete everything incriminating, <laughs> and immediately you know she she got upset because you know. I see how it sounds now after the fact, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, I've read this book. I know what can happen. Um. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And there is just so much of you out there. And it's not that you're not really interesting, because I'm sure you're very interesting, but you're also pretty predictable, because yeah. humans are pretty predictable. And that strikes me as something that is pretty easy to recreate. And in fact, there are lots of things you can already set up now that will send birthday cards, say, to mm -hmm. loved ones for you every mm -hmm. year on their oh, birthday sure. after, you, after you're gone. Um, and this just doesn't seem like that much of an extension. So right. I, know it's, I know it's a while ago now. The book was released in 2012. But one of the things we like to talk about on the podcast is a little bit more about the how um, and this is one that interests me particularly so if you can remember if you yes. can stretch back if you can go to that single moment that inspired sort of the storyline that blossomed into goodbye for now can you walk us through that a little bit I can I can I can't always I can't for all books uh, but interestingly I can for this one so my grandmother died and she and I emailed a lot and and I thought this was this was the perfect answer. I, I just, this made so much sense to me as an idea. And my husband is a software engineer. And I kept saying to him, you should develop this. We would be really rich. We would make <laughs> millions and millions of dollars. This is such a good idea. Because we emailed a lot. But, you know, she's my grandmother. It was fairly, as I say, it was fairly predictable. Um, and, and so I th thought that that would be a really wonderful idea. That I, I understood that I couldn't have her back. But I thought, I could get an email from her pretty frequently, and that would also be really nice. And and that seemed really possible to me. And I sat with that idea for about two years before I, sitting on my sofa one night, thought to myself, wait a minute, I don't actually program computers for a living. I don't actually know anything <laughs> about technology. I don't invent things, but I do write novels. And this is not actually a good idea, but it's a really good idea for a book. And then I pitched it to my agent who said, oh, that's a horrible idea. Why would anybody ever want that product? And I thought, oh, perfect. Because it was so obvious to me that it, that it would be a good product. And and of course, that's what you want to write novels about. Well, I mean, things that it, it's such a good product that you know, right? <laughs> Black Mirror made a whole episode about it. If if you're familiar, I, I I've heard, but I haven't checked it out. Oh, you oh, haven't seen that? It's great. Many many people have emailed me to tell me it, about Do it. Donald Gleason is in it, and it is it is so oh. good. And it's okay. the closest interpretation of of a, a visual visualization of your book that I've seen yet. Um, Interesting. I will say this: oh. they 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 err much more on the creepy side than they do yes. on the. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> they strike that tone so much harder. And if you're going to do it on TV, gosh, it should yeah. be creepy, right? If you're going to do the visual, it should definitely look good. Yeah, well, when the, the literal uh, representation of her dead significant other shows up, uh, I would say that there is a similar moment where she sort of breaks down. Well, she ends up keeping too much. She ends up keeping him in the attic. You know, he's Don't spoil it. She hasn't seen oh. it yet. I'm sorry. 
Um, so for anybody listening, here's a late spoiler alert. Um, so I'm sorry about that. But, uh, you know, there, there's I, I just thought that it was so interesting because, um, you know, for me, when I first read your book, I was, you know, almost uh, I think I was two or three years out of college at that point. So technology in the sense that we know it now was still kind of a new magical thing for me. And you kind of, you know, had you wrote about it as if it was, you know, magical realism to a certain point because, you know, you're speaking to your dead loved ones through an algorithm that reads your Facebook and your emails. But at the same time, this algorithm actually started as, you know, a dating app that was too powerful for its own good. And I thought it was so interesting because I think there's actually two technologies that you may have read wrong back in the day because, you know, who can predict these things? But part of the theme in your book was that this algorithm was so good in matching people to their soulmates that nobody wanted to use the website anymore. Um, and, you know, it was bad for business, so they had to get rid of it. But I think that, you know, we're in a day and age where, um, you know, the accessibility that all of these dating apps give us uh, makes it so that, you know, anybody can, you know, dump their girlfriend and find a new one a week later if they really want right. to. Um, right. So it kind of did the opposite of what you were what you were hoping it would. And yes, isn't that interesting? <laughs> right. I, I mean, yes. it, it's call that human nature beating out the machines. But, um, you know, I just wanted to ask you about it, because when you wrote this, you were you know happily married. And yes. you, you know, theoretically had not been using dating apps or anything at the time. Um, so, like, how did you kind of come up with that concept? Of the of the dating app in particular? Yeah, I mean, because you go into so much detail right. into, like, the algorithm yeah. and how it matches people. You know, I think that dating apps lend themselves to narrative in a way that, say, <laughs> Tinder does not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, now. <laughs> I'm sure there are many respectable... reasonable users of tinder yes and in fact that's sort of my point is that it's a wonderful app to use it just doesn't narrativize very well whereas stories about soulmates and love Mm. and oh we 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 saw each other once and we lived happily ever after um that that's the sort of thing that is probably more elusive in life but in fact lends itself to to novels and lends itself to narrative um even if frankly it's somewhat less believable in some ways, to me, that's the least believable thing in the novel, is that idea that a computer could match you with a soulmate just by asking a couple of questions. That's that's the magic. I mean, wouldn't part. it be great if it could? Wouldn't it be great well, if it that's could? Well, that's, yeah. if that's what you were after. I yeah. was going to say, that's the next logical conclusion, though, because from that step, you do draw something that actually works so well that it must be stopped. Yes. It must right. be stopped for the greater good of capitalism, so what? It, how, how did you come about? So you thought about it from a perspective of you can't get to this point from five stupid questions, but you sort of reasoned out how you might be able to get to that point. So what? How did you think your way through this problem? Like as you're writing it, right? You know that it's less of a how do I want to say this? The answer isn't isn't so much technological as that's the way I wanted the novel to start. I wanted mm. to it was a device to introduce to introduce the character to tell you five things about the character and yeah. and I also needed a a guy who had the the technical know-how to invent this sort of a thing that's but so also smart. the humanity to use it. I I had never <laughs> thought about it that way. That's the yeah. perfect way to introduce your character and tell everybody tell the audience, you know, the reader exactly what you want them to know or her to know. Yes. Um, yeah. Beginnings are hard. Endings, I feel like you earn, and they 
they, they're easy, they just come. But beginnings are really hard because you haven't met the character yet. So, so you got to meet the character. God, I love that. That's, that's amazing. So when you started yeah. writing this, when you came to the idea, can you tell us a little bit about, and this might be you know, inside baseball for anybody who's not particularly interested <laughs> in the process of writing. That's the best kind. But one thing that always strikes me is something that doesn't get talked about a lot is how you go about the process of creating the skeleton, the story structure in and of itself. So when you come to this idea, can you walk us a little bit through how you developed that? Yeah, this one came to me whole, which I realize is not a very gratifying answer. Uh, <laughs> and they don't all, so, <laughs> so maybe that's more gratifying. This one came to me whole. I, I saw the whole thing. One, you know, once two years had passed while I'm sitting with this idea trying to invent a computer app, um, once I came to it in a novel form, it came to me whole. That said, I thought it was a play and not a novel. And um, it took me a long time to figure that out. And the pacing of it was different. Uh, on stage, um, how do I say this? Speaking of spoilers, um, more people were dead at the beginning than than became than, <laughs> than became dead in the middle as the thing went on. That is, the timeline stretched out and was different than I had imagined it to be. And and that's because the focus was somewhat different. I was more interested in um, the life that this guy who had invented this app I was interested in his in his life more than his relationships at the beginning so that that shifted but the skeleton of the thing was there all along and therefore this one wrote really really quickly that is not always true how quickly did you get through it I wrote this book in about four months wow uh yeah which was impressive it was impressive but but I say that, and it's a little bit disingenuous. I was teaching. I was teaching full time at the time, and and I had written, I don't know, maybe ninety pages and sent them to my agent the summer before, and and she had many thoughts, and I ended up throwing that away and thinking about it for a whole school year, and waiting until I handed in grades, and then starting up on it again. And I I didn't look at it in that time. I didn't. I didn't open the file, but it was marinating in my brain the whole time. So, and that's why it wrote so quickly is so, because I had nine months of, of just thinking about it, which is never a luxury writers have otherwise, or I would even recommend to anyone. I love that so much. I mean, and this was truly one of my favorite books from a few years back and I've given it to maybe half a dozen of my friends. Oh, thank um, you. Mm -hmm, and I plan on continuing to do so. So we, we don't want to spend too much time talking about your, your previous book um, because you have a new one coming out. Uh, this is how it always is, is the story of a family of five boys, the youngest of whom becomes a girl. And I mean, tell us a little bit about it. You know, what it, it's out next winter, right? It's out next winter, yes. Okay. It is, it, it is out next winter. And, it, uh, and I'm excited. It's, it's a story about a family. And what happens when change happens in a family, when change happens to one member of a family and the way it affects really everybody? Um, I, having a child change gender is not as unusual as once it was, but is in fact still pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. and, and so it seems like something that, that is sort of fantastical and that happens in novels, but not in real life. And in fact, I, I feel like the point of the book is largely that, no, actually, this happens to everyone. This is how it always is. That you, There's always that something that happens that, you There's know. always something that happens. And yeah. you never quite know what to do about it. And 
all of the things that all of the ways forward are scary because you don't have enough information and you can't have enough information and you don't know how it's going to turn out and you leap because that is the only option in front of you and you do it with with love and a full heart and that's what's going to make everything okay um, and is this another idea that came to you fully formed or did you have to sit with it for a while no, this idea did not come to me fully formed. It also took a good bit of research because what struck me in the beginning as theoretical became less so as the as the book went on, not least because there this is happening so much more to so many more more kids and families. Um, and so what I thought was just going to be a a kind of a, a thought process. I was going to think through these things. It was going to be a philosophical exercise. In fact, turned out to be a lot of medical research mm-hmm. that I did not expect going in. Um, so when you get into, I'm going to stop saying, um, I just heard myself say it again for about the 50th <laughs> time already. And now I'm conscious You're of fine. it. It's yeah. going to happen. So when you sit down to write a process-based book like that, something that involves a lot of research, how much per day are you actually writing and how much of your time are you spending reading up on the different things you need to know? I write a thousand words a day if I'm writing, period. Uh, I mean, often I write more. Regardless of everything else that's going on. Regardless of everything else that's going on, I don't stop until I've written a thousand words, which isn't very much and frankly doesn't take very long. And I only do that on days when I'm writing. So someday, and I have a small child, some days I'm, I'm not getting any work done at all. But if I'm writing, I write a thousand words. I cut... 200,000 words from this book. Wow. Wow. Which is three-ish novels. Uh, <laughs> Ish. Two to three novels-ish, yeah. So, so those aren't always productive words. They're not words that I'm necessarily going to keep, but they keep me working. They keep me moving forward. I mostly research as I go. Not always, and in this case, sometimes I, I simply couldn't write it because I didn't understand the medicine and I had to stop and spend a couple of days reading up on these things. But I didn't know what I didn't know until I couldn't write the sentence, basically, until I came to the sentence and, and couldn't write it. I also came to the end of part two and typed, she agreed to go to Thailand. And then I thought, shit, I'm going to need to go to Thailand uh, because <laughs> never had I been to Thailand. And if, she, if the character was going, I figured I'd Oh, man, what, 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 a, what a punishment, having to go to Thailand. Right? So I you know. went to Thailand for research. Yes. So I went to so. Thailand for research. Isn't that great? I brought my mother, and I went for a couple of weeks. And, um, and, and it was a tax write-off. It was, it, and it's a tax write-off, yes. <laughs> I love and, that. Um, and also really just, you know, quite wonderful, obviously. So, Lori, tell us a little bit about your background. You know, I know that you're a teacher at various institutions, um, and, uh, you know, you've been doing it. You're, you're more of a full-time writer now, but, you know, you were a professor before. Um, and I actually ran into one of your, your students, uh, Kevin Wynn. Uh, oh, wonderful. Yeah, of course he, you did. He, yes. he's, he's actually uh, a future guest on the show. Um, oh, good. Oh, he's so great. He's the best. I, I love him. He's uh, the best, yeah. So, and, and he is also a huge fan of you. Um, so I just need to know kind of, you know, who else you, you taught and mentored <laughs> that, that we may know and, um, you know, where you taught and, and what your favorite subjects were and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think Kevin is the big one. I believe that if you had said anything else, that is, when you said to me, oh, I, I knew one of your former students, I thought, well, of, of course it has to be Kevin. <laughs> uh, you know, not least because at most, you know, I'm across the country and most of my students are also across the country here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so, I teach, so I used to teach Shakespeare 
Okay. And literature broadly and um, drama, I suppose, in particular. And I taught a lot of writing. Which explains the play version of Goodbye for Now. Explains the play version, exactly, because at the time I was teaching playwriting. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that happens is things come out of your mouth in the classroom and you think, oh, that's true. I should be doing that. (laughs) (laughs) It's 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 a really good way. It's a good lesson. Yeah. Smart, yeah, good teacher. I should I should implement those things. Um, so I was teaching playwriting. So I was so I was writing plays. I also taught fiction writing, and I also taught a lot of of comp um, and and rhetoric and that sort of thing. And I also taught a lot of gender studies. So the new book really brings together basically everything. I love that. that it's, yeah, I mean it's it's such a topic nowadays. Um, I mean for good reason. Uh, yeah. But I think that that you really hit on something that's going to be, you know, incredibly relevant. Um, you know, and in, in every day you hear a new story about, um, you know, somebody who's kind of accepting their identity, and yeah, and I mean, given another year, and that's that's you know, hundreds of thousands amazing, more people. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's 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 so awesome to be able to see this nowadays, and yeah. I can't wait to to see how you did it. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Of course. Of course. So. One of the other segments we like to get into is we ask our authors who they're reading. And for you, I think it might be particularly interesting to hear who we should be reading based on your your student section. Let's hear some shout outs. Yeah, for sure. But no, so who are are you reading? Right now I'm reading the, um, it's called A Gap in Time. It's the the Hogarth adaptations of the Shakespeare plays. It's the first one. It's the Winter's Tale is what it's is what it's adapting. It's Jeanette Winterson. And it is amazing and surreal. It's very interesting. The Winter's Tale is a Shakespeare that not everybody has seen and not everybody knows, you know, as opposed to like Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, so it's very interesting to me that that is what they chose to start with, uh, you know, as opposed to something that was that was more famous and more known. And, you know, she's just done such interesting things with it. And it's in so many ways, Shakespeare is always an adaptation. You know, you you go and see a stage version of of a text. And so this is a, a similar thing, but it's a text version of a text. And that's fascinating and um, and remarkable. I just finished um, Paul Beatty's new book. It's called The Sellout. Oh, my God. I I was just talking to Kevin about that book. It is amazing and should be read by everyone. He is such a student of yours. He said the exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) See, I made that happen. It's very powerful. (laughs) And and for anybody who doesn't know, Kevin is uh, the editorial director of Google Play. So, um, you know, he knows exactly what he's talking about, just like Lori. So, yeah. Yeah, that's we're going to have to prep him, though, so that he doesn't answer this question the same way when he comes (laughs) (laughs) out. Or maybe he could. And then we could spread the gospel of this book, which is truly unlike. I mean, I I feel like this is a thing that people say all the time. It's unlike anything I've ever read. And I'm not sure I've ever said that before, but it is genuinely unlike anything I've ever read. It's um, and it's remarkable. Can you give us the one line synopsis? I don't believe I can. It is maybe five line synopsis. Yes, exactly. It is difficult to synopsize. It is about an African American farmer in LA, like in LA proper, who is farming and growing weed and ends up before the Supreme Court because he is also keeping a slave. And um, when does this take place? That took a turn. 
<laughs> exactly. It takes place currently. It is. Okay. It is a, it takes place it's right a contemporary now. novel. <laughs> yeah. That definitely took um, a turn around the third he, sentence. Yes, he is keeping it. Well, I mean, in fact, though, the fact that he's farming in L.A. in the hood is itself sort of remarkable. Mm-hmm. And but you're willing but, to I mean, accept he's farming, that. He's farming. You can sort of picture it. You think you said okay, he's growing pot, though, right? He is, but he's also has cows and okay. chickens and <laughs> livestock <trees laughs> in the middle of Los Angeles. That must be complicated. I have to read Pigs, this book. All of these things, yes, yes, um, yes. And then he he has a slave, and he segregates the school system, uh, re-segregates the school system, uh, and ends up in front of the Supreme Court. And um, and it's a novel. I mean, it it has it has a through story and characters and all of that, but it is also an essay on race and. Um, and, and rather an insightful one. I love. I that. will definitely have to pick that up. Yeah, oh, yeah, you must. So, a- anything else from the last like year or so that that just jumped out at you? The book I'm recommending to everyone in the last year or so, I suppose, is. I mean, gosh, there's <laughs> there's, there's so, so much that's so wonderful. Yeah, um, but Karen Joy Fowler's book, "We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves," oh, is wow. a book okay. that I loved i guess that's been a little bit that's maybe two years now but i adored that that, book. that was that was, that was uh it had, it had good press it got good press yeah. eventually yeah it did yeah. and it um it caught up with itself it's such a beautiful brilliant really wonderfully done book and 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 this is what i mean i've been recommending it to everyone because i feel like whatever your reading proclivities, uh, whatever, whatever your inclinations are, uh, whatever it is that you like to read, this, this is the book for you. Okay. That's good yeah. to know. The other book and, that I'm always recommending to people is whatever David Mitchell is writing lately. And I, I saw um, an interview and I knew you were a big David Mitchell fan. I am a big David Mitchell fan. So, um, his, his new, his new book is called Slade House. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and it's very short and very creepy and a, and a lovely little ghost story. Um, and, and so I've been recommending that as well. So uh, and just so everybody knows, uh, in the show notes, we're going to include a link to a list of, of all Ooh. of uh, Lori's you know, books that she's recommending. We'll lay it out for you. Um, so okay. it's, uh, and it's a cool little voting system that we use on Product Hunt. So everybody will be able to vote for their favorite. And um, you know, we'll, we'll be able to kind of have a competition um, eventually okay. at, at the end of the year, you know, after this first season of our, our you know, guests, I, I really can't wait to, uh, you know, combine them all and see which is everybody's favorites. Um, okay. I have like great the... taste in literature. Oh, so I know. I know. Like so, so everybody should read what I tell them to read. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Spoken like so, a teacher. So, yeah, right? <laughs> yes. I think it might be time. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, what we do on this show, um, and I know you kind of know that is, um, we ask all of our guests to talk about, you know, the one story that they could never tell. And it could be, uh, you know, something they never wanted to tell their parents or their wife or their, you know, boyfriend. Um, it could be they didn't want to, you know, upset their boss. Uh, it could be for a racial reason. But, you know, everybody has one. You know, most people have more than one. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess uh, I know you prepared something and, and um, you know, we are very excited to hear it. But I. Uh, you know, lay it on us. I, I, for for the woman who is not afraid to write about, you know, creepy dating algorithms <laughs> or you know transgender issues, I I cannot wait to hear you know what what you're interested in telling us. 
Yes, interesting. Uh, yeah, that's funny. That's an interesting observation. Um, yeah, so indeed, you know, the story, the story is not salacious. The story is not embarrassing. The story is not particularly hard to tell. But it, and it's a good story, but I don't tell it anyway. And uh, since you asked me, I've been I've been thinking about why that is. And you're right; I managed to write about all sorts of things that you might not think I would be willing to write about. And this doesn't seem like it would fall into that category, but in fact, it does. Um, okay. So that's interesting. And, yeah. And, and just so, so you know, we we didn't ask because you write about difficult things. We asked because we love your writing. That's why we all ask all of our guests. So. That's really nice of you. Yes, it's a, you know it's interesting too. Uh, again, sort of as an aside, that I'm I can write about almost anything, but talking about things is much <laughs> much harder. That's a that's a totally different ball. That's, well, that, that's, that's the exact opposite yeah. of our problem. We can talk about anything, yes. but we never write it. So it's interesting, isn't it? And I wonder show. if most people get one or the other, but you can't have both. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully that won't last forever, at least for us. Yeah. Hope, yeah, yeah, for me too. I, I hope. Yeah. Um, okay, so this story takes place in the year two thousand at a community college, in, a community college in Baltimore, where I was teaching, but which shall remain nameless to protect the innocent. It was my first full time job. I had just dropped out of graduate school, and they had me teaching developmental writing which I was in no way trained or qualified to do. Um, and in fact, in some ways, and that's part of what the story is about, my training made it made me less qualified, I suppose, to, to teach this class. But I was teaching it anyway. Um, developmental writing is for college students who are not who can't place into English 101 um, they are not yet writing at the college level and they're pissed off and rightfully so because they have to pay for the class and they have to pass the class but they don't get a grade and they don't get credit because they're not writing at the college level that sounds like a wonderful and arrangement it's a wonderful arrangement isn't it I had I had some complaints about the system um, one of them was that on the first day of class we were to give an assessment essay wherein we determined whether they belonged in my class or in fact the next class down which meant they had to take and pass two classes before they could start earning credits oh dear uh, and the assignment had to be a one paragraph essay where the first sentence was a clear thesis statement so fine. And so I came up with this assignment, which was write about either the best job you ever had or the worst job you ever had, which seemed to me to be a good essay because it lent itself to a first sentence, which read, my best job was blank because blank. My best job was working in a bakery because I got to eat a lot of free cookies. Or my worst job was working in a bakery because <laughs> I got to eat a lot of free cookies. And now I have type 2 diabetes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and I had this kid turn in this essay, which said, my best job ever is my current job. I'm incredibly well paid. I don't need a college degree. My boss does not care that I am not writing at college level English. I get to work outside. I get to make my own hours. It isn't a boring job. It's very exciting. And my current job is also my worst job ever because it's dangerous and it's scary and because deep down I know it's wrong and because deep down I know my grandmother would be ashamed of me and disappointed with me. And then he ended with a thesis statement, which was my best and worst job is the job I currently have, which is selling drugs on a street corner of Baltimore, which will also remain nameless. And the essay itself was a mess. Um, at the sentence level, it was a disaster. The, the grammar was terrible, it was a mess. Uh, but the student had done some really clever things, I thought. Um, he had combined the best and worst thing. He had this 
you know, sophisticated insight that opposites are often both rather than either or. He held the thesis statement until the end where it would be a reveal and deliver a payoff. So on the one hand, this kid maybe didn't belong in my class. And on the other, I saw this, this spark, this creativity that, you know, is really what writing is, is about. So the next day, I asked him to stay after class. And I said, look, you know, you're borderline. Um, if you stay, this is going to take some extra work on your part. You're going to have to come to office hours. You're going to have to get some tutoring. You're going to have to revise a lot. If you can do those things, you can stay. If not, you should go to the lower class. And he said, yes, he understood. And yes, he would work extra hard. And he thanked me. But after a couple of weeks, his attendance got real sporadic. And he'd miss a few classes and then come back, miss a few classes and then come back. And I'd say, you've missed more classes than you're allowed to miss and still pass this class. And he'd say, you know what I do for a living. I couldn't come to class. And I would cut him some slack. Eventually, around midterm, he stopped coming all together. And then he showed up for the final exam. And at that point, I hadn't seen him for weeks and weeks. And I was... I was very surprised to see him walk in. Um, it was an in-class essay, so I called him out into the hallway, and I said, dude, you know, what are you doing here? And he said he knew he'd missed a lot of class, but he felt like he had to at least try to pass. And I said, yeah, but you didn't try. And he said, well, I tried to try. And I thought, that wasn't unimpressive. Sometimes you can't do a thing and you can't even try to do a thing, but you can try to try to do a thing. And, and that's good too. That, that's a good start. That's also important. So I said, okay. I helped him sign up for classes again the following semester. And we said, okay, great. You know, now we have a better idea of what your challenges are. You've already written the first essay. Um, you have a couple of weeks off to rest. We, we were off for a few weeks for winter break. We came back to classes in January. He was on my roster. I went to class on the first day and he wasn't there. And I never saw him again, ever. But I think about him all the time. Um, I think about that little heralded triumph of trying to try. Uh, and I think about the things that get away of even that and what we might do to try to get those things out of the way to, to clear the way to try. Um, even though I think about that kid all the time, I usually don't tell the story. First off, because it's not really my story. It's, it's his story. It's not really a story that's about me. And secondly, because even all these years later, I am not quite clear what the moral of the story is. And it's not for lack of thinking about it. But mostly it's because it doesn't have an ending. That is a pretty powerful non-ending. It's a pretty powerful non-ending. It's a, it's a pretty powerful non-story. So it's sometimes stories come from these places that are difficult to discuss and we don't always know if it's our business or our right to talk about these stories. But if we don't talk about them, then, you know, who's going to? Right. Yes. So. Well, I think this is, I mean, I come from the inner city uh, upstate from Syracuse and I would say it's not nearly as bad as I would imagine Baltimore to be, mostly because I've seen The Wire, not because I have any <laughs> personal experience there. Um, but I can't imagine the struggle that must come with trying to juggle these two disparate lives and yes. the in-between. And the in-between, right. And it's, it's very difficult to make an argument that paying for school for which you're not even getting credit and standing at the front of what is a very long and difficult path makes more sense than a job which is 
indeed incredibly lucrative and exciting and the opposite of doing a lot of work for 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 no for no credit and for no for no grade that requires a remarkable leap of faith that is not in fact obviously or self-evidently worth it well and you come from you know being in a product of a public school system myself you come from this world where hard work is heralded but it's also produced nonstop. And there are a lot of environmental concerns that come with that, particularly when you're living a life like that and the people you find yourself surrounded with, you know, when you choose a profession like that, not that it alleviates any of the responsibility, but it's, I can't imagine looking around at a community college and looking around on a street corner and finding the similarities like it sounds like he did, especially to be able to write about it in a coherent way. Yes. Yes. I mean, and you know, you bring up the wire and, and what I really loved about the wire was the argument that it made that selling drugs takes a lot of extraordinary creativity and diligence and intelligence and, uh, you know, and this ability to navigate the world in a way that is in fact what we are teaching and valuing in, in a college classroom, just from a different perspective. I mean, it's very clear that this kid was smart, you know, um, Definitely. Maybe didn't have the best judgment, but, you know, very, very clear that he uh, he knew what he was doing. Um, he knew what he was doing. And it was, you know, and, and I was coming from this place where I thought, oh, education, education solves all ills. Education is the answer. And and frankly, I, I do believe that. I, I still believe it. But I believe it from a very different place than I did 20 minutes after I started teaching and had dropped out of graduate school. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's all different kinds of education. Some of some of my right. you know, most important lessons I learned, you know, outside of the classroom. Um, um, yeah. So I know you said you haven't written this yet because it's not your story. But what you did tell us was the story from your perspective. And I feel like there is an engaging perspective there now that you've had a little bit of distance have you reconsidered at all your decision not to write this I mean just listening to the telling I'm interested I would read more oh thanks yeah uh I don't know I I don't know I think if it came up I would be willing to write it my classroom when I write about things that happen in the classroom they tend to be the funny things rather than the hard and serious things because because often that's what the rest of the book is doing is part of the serious things. Uh, and because so much of what happens in the classroom is so funny and, and so wonderful. This was, was wonderful in a, in a different way. And I, I don't know that it was wonderful for him. I, and, and this is what I mean. I don't know what the moral of the story is. And, and in the end, I feel like you write about things because you, you want to impart some kind of a, a message with them. I don't know what the message is here. I, I, I could manipulate it. I could make it be what I wanted to be, but it isn't clear to me what it is. Well, I've I've always been of the school where you know I'd rather not have you know a nice little bow tie at the end of a story. Um, I I kind of love to be able to make my own assumptions about what the writer wanted me to understand. And and so many short story collections, and I won't name any of them. Um, they do that. They have this little you know dessert at the end, you know, a paragraph that sums up exactly right. what they want you to feel. And sometimes it'll ruin a great story. Um, and I can tell you that, uh, you know, the pause that everybody heard at the end of your story was not generated by us. Uh, you know, <laughs> that that was actually a pause. You know, it's... Yep. Uh, that is actually a pause. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly the right way to put it. It is, it is actually a pause that you come to at the end and you think, 
Okay, well, that's all that's all I have to give in the story. That is actually all I know. I could make something up, but it would be pretend. Be a hell of a short story. Yeah, it would be great. It would be a hell of a short story. Yeah. So. It is a, I mean, it is a, it is a very it is interesting to me. It's a it's a pretty short story. It doesn't involve a lot of one of the things that you asked in your emails leading up to this was, did you were you going to need to do any research? Did you need any background information? And it it's just a, it's a very simple story. It doesn't require very much perspective. It it sort of brings its own perspective, I think. Yeah, that's true. And I imagine I do imagine, though, that if you went in to novelize it, you might have to do a little bit of research about the drug dealing. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yes. <laughs> I yes. don't imagine. So I, I lived in Baltimore for a long time and and didn't. Um, well, I didn't do drugs and I didn't deal drugs. And uh, and it's interesting to be that that close to something as opposed to, say, Thailand, where I had to fly halfway around the world. Um, it's interesting to be that close to something and, and still not know very much about it. It, yeah, I was going to say, it's it's insight into a world that I'm sure a lot of us don't have experience with. And yeah. to be so close to it and so far from it at the same time, I'm sure it was a lot like your student coming to community college and seeing, right. like you described, this path of long, hard work that might not necessarily pay off. Did yeah. you did you keep his story? His, oh, his, no. his paragraph essay? No, I did not. Uh, that would have been great. I did not. It would, yeah, but <laughs> very problematic. <laughs> yes, I'm agree for the story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is this is evidence. I kept it for evidence. Yeah, right. Um, yes. So you've never uh, tried to go back through social media and find him or figure out what he's doing? Well, I'm sure you probably have a dozen stories that are similar. I mean, maybe nothing like that, but certainly. In fact, one of the things that changed most was my perspective and experience level, rather than that that students who were trying to who were trying to try, who were trying to make that transition, stopped coming. They did not stop coming. But I got a better sense, I think, of, you know, of how to, um, how to help. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I can't help but feel that this story is particularly ripe given the current state of the education system, Common Core, and all the things that have happened I mean, over the last yeah. 10 years. What I'm the really trying to say is that I like your writing. The timing Ooh, is right. Thanks. I think we've got a book <laughs> yeah. here. Okay. <laughs> this is number five. I'm calling it right, right. now. Good. Not, okay. That's good. Number five, in, you know, in context is because, you know, she is currently working on number four. Um, That's right. For those of I you who tuned in, on number four. <laughs> 45 minutes late. So, yeah. um, well, you know, I think this is awesome. I, I really love that, um, you know, this is the story that you chose to tell because, you know, that's one of the things that most people don't realize that it's not necessarily our own story that we can't tell, but it's a story that, you know, we're on the peripheral for. Um, yeah. And I do have some more questions. So, I mean, particularly related to the process, let's pretend like you've decided you're going to novelize this okay. um, <laughs> and you've made up an ending because, or you've decided that maybe the pause at the end is enough. Um, when you sit down with a subject like this, where do you start? Do you start in the middle? Um, if it comes fully formed, do you work your way from the beginning to the end? Are there uh, works that you're reading throughout to try and hit on a different style that you want to exercise? Yes, yes to all of those questions. I, I try very hard to write from the beginning to the end more or less. I try not to let myself skip ahead to the scenes that I would really want to write because then they don't make sense. I, I want to get there in a more or less natural kind of a, a progression. Uh, otherwise, I, I don't realize things. And in fact, 
this happens to me all the time where I'm writing and I just, the answer comes out of my fingers before it has entered my brain. And I read it on the screen and I was like, oh, huh, did not see that coming in the same way that when I read and, and that's a wonderful thing. And I, I don't want to screw with that magic, basically. If that's going to happen, I, I want to let it happen for sure. Um, I am always reading while I am writing. And I know a lot of people who, a lot of writers who claim the opposite, that they can't read while they write. I, I not only am reading while I'm writing, I'm also often reading while I'm writing. Like I am typing with a book in my lap that I am reading at the same time. I usually don't let myself read things that I can't have. So if I'm writing a book in the first person, I'm not usually reading books written in the third person because then I think, oh, maybe I should do that instead. <laughs> I, I have decision-making problems. <laughs> but so, so you actually are capable of, of like writing, you know, unique and native thoughts while reading another book? Yes. I, and and the incredulity in your voice is shared by many, many people. Yeah, I know that blows I, me away. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. <laughs> well, no, I think it's it's wild because I actually have a friend that uh, got a ticket once because he was driving down the street while reading a book. And yeah. you know, that <laughs> has just always blown my mind. Yes. Well, that's mind-blowing and dangerous. <laughs> He should. Right. Have got, he, he deserved the ticket that he yeah, got. Yeah, no, for yeah. sure. He and, probably and, deserved yes. the ticket. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, reading and writing at the same time is is not dangerous. And I find that uh, that I that I have to be reading in order to do any writing at all. I find it very inspiring. I find it very instructive. Um, and. And I also sometimes get really jealous while I'm reading a book. I think, damn, this is really good. And that drives me to put the book away and go back to the document that I'm working on. I love uh, that. Yeah. Not and it's, you know, I find that otherwise also I, uh, you know, I, I command tab over to another window and then I'm just reading shit online. And that is not inspirational and it is not instructive. I, I know and if instead I have a book in my lap, then I take those moments where my, my brain needs a small rest and read something, which is, you know, just infinitely more useful in the process of writing novels. I know so many writers that just unplug their internet before they start writing. Yes, yes, which is great unless you have research to mm -hmm. words to look up. Or Reddit always, or Facebook or Twitter. You're, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Does the yeah, book have sure. to be related? Does it have to be related to the style or the subject that you're writing? It doesn't. I usually am looking for something specific. So, like, I can't figure out how I'm going to move through time in this book. I, I need to skip weeks and months and sometimes a whole season and... And I think, how the hell do I do that? And so then I read a bunch of books that do that, and I see how they do that. Or I forget what I'm allowed to do in the first person. And so then I read a bunch of books in the first person, and I think, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Those are some good options. Um, it's I know that a lot of people think they're going to just then subconsciously copy what's in front of them. And I just, my I think my brain must not work that way. But the other thing I wonder is whether their brains actually do work that way or they just think they do. I, I find that in my head, I think, oh, this is so much in the style of what it is that I'm reading. And I go back and read it later. And no, it just sounds like me. It always sounds like me. I always sound like me. It's such an interesting concept. I would never have thought to read while writing, to even try it. Yeah, I mean, that blows my mind. Although, you know, to, to be honest, people have said the same thing about the fact that I listen to music while I write, or I'm sorry, yes. while I read. 
Um, yes. And you that's know, exactly how I feel about that. I, I, I cannot, li- I cannot listen to music while I write or read. I can't write in coffee shops cause it's too mm-hmm. loud. I share an office with my husband and I have to mm-hmm. take my, my laptop and go downstairs because he's like whistling or tapping his foot <laughs> and it's like, no, I can't do anything while you're doing it's, that. It's like the beating heart in the floor. <laughs> exactly. I mean, but at the same time, I can't listen to an audiobook or a podcast while I'm, while I'm reading. No. So. I don't no. know. It's uh, <laughs> I think, I think uh it's a, it's a that. it's a talent and I think that it's very impressive. Um yeah, multitasking, right? And that's why your books are so good. Lori, I wanna thank you for taking the time today to show us a little bit more of your world and to tell us that story. Yeah. Thank I, you for giving me the opportunity to do it. It it has been a pleasure. Yeah, this has been really awesome and, and yeah. we, we appreciate it. So uh everybody make sure to pick up a copy of This Is uh This Is Always How It Is next winter when it comes out. And also a copy of Goodbye for Now if you want to get a taste of, of, of Lori's writing now. Um, I mean, it, it's incredible. Uh, and, you know, I stand by that. Uh, so thank you so much for being on the show. As always, this episode is produced by Kelly Harrison. The music at the top and the bottom is by Ryan Dan, also known as Holland Patton Public Library. We want to thank Lori Frankel for being on the show this week. Uh, You can pick up her book, Goodbye for Now, anywhere books are sold. Keep an eye out for her new book, Out from Flattering Books, next winter. This is how it always is. You can find more from her at LoriFrankel.net and follow her on Twitter at Lori underscore Frankel. You can follow Writers Who Don't Write at www.podcast.com. Make sure to sign up for our newsletter for all kinds of author extras, including an awesome picture of Lori's bookshelf, which she made for $15, a ladder, and four sheets of plywood. We are on Twitter at www.podcast and wherever social media is sold. Even all these years later, I am not quite clear what the moral of the story is. 